Hi, welcome to the Spotlight Report. I'm your host, Logan Graves. This is a monthly podcast where we dive into topics that pique our interest. They typically cover optics and science, but honestly, they can be quite broad. You can find out more about the Spotlight Report and find all of our episodes, as well as comment or like the podcast, on our new location, which is on the ELE Optics Community Forum. That location is community.eleoptics.com, and you'll find the Spotlight Report there. You can also now find the video of our interviews on our YouTube channel, The Spotlight Report. As this is something new for this week, uh, I encourage you to go to YouTube and search for this episode to view the video. Uh, What you'll have to search for is Spotlight Report and our guest name, Julius Mushuik. I hope that you enjoy the new YouTube videos, and I'm looking forward to hearing your feedback as to whether or not it's something useful to our audience, or if there's any changes uh, that you'd like to see in the videos or in the podcast overall. So, as always, enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. So we're starting with kindness as a spotlight report? Sure. Let's okay. Go. okay. This week on the Spotlight Report, we are speaking with Julius Mushwick. He has had over 25 years of experience in the illumination field broadly. Um, He came into the field uh, with a project on concentrating sunlight, which I'm sure he'll talk about. And he later uh, helped to form a startup. After the startup, he went to work for Osram, uh, an LED and lamp manufacturer. And after that, he worked for Aerie. which does in a, in a role both doing imaging and illumination uh, type of optics, which again, he'll, he'll speak more about. And currently, uh, Julius focuses on freelance work and education in the illumination field. So Julius, thanks very much for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Um, so illumination is something, you know, we, we had brief correspondence in my email. I had the benefit mm-hmm. of working with Dr. Koshal at the U of A, but it's a field that is extremely important, extremely deep, and also, at least in my experience, um, most optical engineers don't actually have a, a firm grasp on it. So I'm curious, yeah. how did you get into the field? What, what brought you to it? What brought me to it was, so I'm a physicist. I studied physics in Munich and I, I ended up doing my thesis for solar thermal collectors, which had not yet anything to do with, um, with optics. But a little later, um, I got into a project where we tried to make a solar thermal collector, which would deliver heat at like 50% efficiency and 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can't just do that with a black plate on the roof. So it should have no moving parts. So no, no checking like you have in Tucson or wherever. Just, you know, no, just a flat plate type of thing. The idea was that with that kind of heat, you can quite efficiently do solar cooling. I won't get into the details of that, but the, the high temperature is the key to do that efficiently. The, 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 so the, the business idea was to, to replace peak electricity in, in the hot parts of the country for, for by, but just by, by heat. And, um, and the way to do that is to take, you know, tubular black absorbers, which would be in a vacuum tube. And even that's not enough for insulation because you have to form sort of like a, like a trough shaped reflector around that. Mm-hmm. So that would capture the sunlight and redirect it onto the tubes. Huh? And, uh, and then you would have 
all the sunlight captured, but you would have fewer tubes and fewer losses because they would be spaced further apart. So when I got into that project, I thought, okay, so let's do this engineering type of thing properly. And, and it all sounded like a, like a little bit of, you know, pocket calculator science and, uh, and, and metal sheet bending. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, now, now it's 25 years later and I'm still doing the same stuff huh? because it's way deeper than it, than it sounded. That got me into optics to understand the connection between the efficient collection or transport of light for energy purposes, not for imaging purposes, for energy purposes and illumination is basically the same thing. And, and the connection between that and thermodynamics, which is, mm -hmm. which is really deep when you get to it, you know, light is Light is governed, at least all, all we do in this field is basically governed by Maxwell's equations. And Maxwell's equations, they don't know the difference between past and future. But light does. Light doesn't conspire to bounce off the walls and illuminate a light bulb. It's always the other way around. And, um, and that's deep. And it's still sort of an unsolved mystery why that is so. And that just caught me. And, and that brought me to, to illumination optics. So we, so, so we did that and we did some really cool projects and we built a world record collector at the time. And then, um, and that brought me to, to, to Chicago where Roland Winston, who is well known to many people in the field, he invited me to, to be there in Chicago for a year as a visiting scholar to do this collector work. And then I met an old friend and colleague, Harold Rees, again, from the University of Munich, who was also a guest lecturer in Chicago at the time. And, and over many steaks and many bottles of red wine <laughs> in Chicago, we felt that, that solar energy was not suffering from a lack of research. It was suffering from a low oil price and lack of economic opportunity and lack of, you know, the general public being ready for it. Mm -hmm. Things have changed quite a bit since, but it was 1998 at that time. And so Harold and I decided to just, you know, turn the light path around. And instead of um, concentrating sunlight from far away onto a small object that would be hot, take it from where it's hot and then send it far away. And, and we created this startup. So like huh. it should be, it was in, in Harold's guest room in, in his little apartment in Munich. <laughs> this is where we started the company. And we, you know, we had no business plan. We had, we just wanted to do illumination optics and we knew that we knew our physics and we thought, you know, um, customers would come and they did. And we did some really pioneering work on freeform optics. And I hear you, that you also know a few things about that. So I'm sure that you're familiar with the work that we did like 20 years ago. Yeah. And um, so, so we did that for a while. And then, I mean, I was in the field and then, uh, one thing came to another, and I, I later then um, I, I left that company because they, we did consulting at the time, and mm -hmm. I wanted to get closer to being actual project, and that basically then started the rest of my career. And what was before we move move on to, to your later career? What was the what was the actual product that that startup was selling? Um, we were providing optical design for illumination as a service. Okay, it was consulting, consulting, yeah. I think, and it's most Okay, and we and also sold, we also sold light tools and code five. Oh, okay. In the German-speaking countries, mm -hmm. but uh, that was just like a like a complementary effort. Huh? Sure, selling I the noticed, software. And, yeah. I noticed in your, uh, I will speak about it, but in your Atondu and source selection video, the uh, the light tools has the the German language, which. Um, for a second, when you pulled up the menus, I said, oh, I'm not familiar with this. So, 
Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. At the, I'm, I'm really curious. At the time, you know, in the '90s or late '90s, was illumination design in high demand? No, it was oh. an exotic thing to do. Huh? Okay. It really was. I mean, um, all 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 the colleagues which I know from that time, and that um, um, that's. Uh, some some poet has called it the small tender circle of people you know, because you know we used to have non-imaging optics workshops uh, and we would see the same like 20 or 30 faces at, huh. at some SPAE conferences and that was it it was all people th that were doing non-imaging optics for solar energy and um, basically and illumination just wouldn't be done and all of us have basically written their own ray trace code at the time oh, wow. that when, when, when we did that we were using our own ray trace code and and ASAP was just ASAP was available, but um, but Lightroom was was just in its infancy, and other programs weren't around yet. So basically, the software wasn't there, and right. uh, and also um, the the act, so the the process, the notion of doing optical design for illumination as a service, that was sort of new, unique. There was, I, I believe, at the, at that time in Germany, there was only one other small company who would do that. People would just do it within the companies and do some engineering by themselves. And you know, remember that was the time when automotive headlamps were like an incandescent bulb and a parabolic right. mirror, yeah? Yeah? and then some, 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 some glass with lenslets. Yeah? So they would basically take the beam and use lenslets and little prisms to just send it around and to shape the beam like that. Yeah? So, and you don't need software to do that. Right. Right. A very yeah. kind of intuitive feeling approach. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so so at that time it was really it was really pioneering work, and that that's also what made it great. And we started that in 1998, and I have to confess that only like a couple of years later I became I became aware that there was an LED revolution bound to happen. That was that was going to be my next question. Is that yeah. you know at the time when you mm -hmm. think about the the number of illumination sources that we you know casually consider yeah. leds hadn't hadn't fully really hit the market yet no. correct way way off huh? they were just okay. they were just expensive and 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 weak and inefficient that was the huh. that was the time where leds would double their efficiency every year <laughs> that's not the case anymore and the, is that i mean did you see like a very drastic change once that started happening? Once, yes. once you had LEDs, okay. It okay. was, it was. So two things came together to to make my profession sort of normal, and one thing was <laughs> was the advent of of computers, which were really powerful enough to do Monte Carlo ray tracing. Because although it seems to be simpler, you know, for an imaging optics, for, for the analysis of that, you trace maybe 100 rays and then you know what the image quality is. For a decent, so, and for an automotive headlamp where you want to study like the details of the color uh, of mm -hmm. the projection lens on a projection system, you, 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 easily, you easily need a billion rays. Right, right. You trace that to the system, so you need a good computer. That was the, that. And the other thing was LEDs where all of a sudden the photons were so precious that you basically yeah. had to caress them and then treat them and invite them individually to your target. Huh? And, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, uh, and that, and, and those, two, I... those two things basically came together where the, the expensive LEDs 
made the engineering worthwhile, which was made possible by the advent of the first computers and the advent of then commercial software like Lightroom, ASAP, and Fred, mm -hmm. and Trace Pro, and Photopia, and more. Right, so a number of things kind of coalesced yeah. at the right right time. To and I, I just happened to be there just a little early. <laughs> <laughs> convenient for you. <laughs> yeah, convenient for me. I, 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 well, it's just how it happened. Huh? Sure, of course. So, so after your work uh, at your startup, um, you know, before I, I took that detour, you went over to uh, Ostrom. And can you tell me a little bit more about that? So. Osram is, is, is maybe not so well known, but it's actually one of the largest lamp manufacturers. So incandescent bulbs basically was GE and Philips, or General Electric and Philips and Osram, the three big names. Yeah. Same for fluorescent tubes and, and also high intensity discharge lamps. And Osram to this day is also one of the largest LED manufacturers. And when I left my former consulting startup company, um, I actually had no plan B. I just took a break for a few months and then said, you know, people know me, they're going to find me. And that's what happened. Osram found me. <laughs> we, did, we did some consulting work for Osram before that. And, and um, basically, I wrote a letter to all my business contacts that, um, that uh, I'm looking for new challenges. And that's how it happened. So they, they knew me already. And then they invited me to join the team. And then I joined Osram, the, the, the LED branch in Regensburg, which was great. And to this day, I consider that like um, one of the best things and the best experiences in my professional life. Huh? Huh. It was just such a wonderful team. And, um, and it was, you know, um, it was good from the very top. Huh? Mm -hmm. Because the, the CEO in Regensburg of the LED branch, he sort of shielded us from all sorts of other things that came from the big Osram <laughs> mother. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's a, it's a kind of thing where you stand in the, in the, in, the, in the kitchen and you chat with a colleague and you drink a coffee and then the boss comes by. Huh? And the, if the boss has any time to spare, he just joins and picks a cup of coffee and continues to chat with you because everybody knows that everybody is just giving his or her very best to, mm -hmm. to achieve the common goals and nobody would be, you know, uh, frowned upon just for drinking a cup of coffee. Huh? It was just, right, it was a right. wonderful experience. And for the first few years, <clears throat> the, the pioneering work that I did there was to bring LEDs to LCD backlights, which now sounds totally obvious. At the time, it wasn't. At the time, it was called cathode fluorescent lamps. And, um, and then Sony was the, the key customer at the time. And we developed the science and engineering and logist logistics of uh, of. of bringing the correct LEDs to the right place to make uh, LCD black backlights with, with LEDs really work. Now there's huh. nothing else. Huh? But Wait, at the time it was... the standard now. So. It, oh, it totally is since over 10 years, but uh, I've been part of the team that really made that happen, which was huh. great. It was a great experience. I've, I've been in Japan, I don't know how many times. And, um, and, um, and I had a very good relationship with the chief engineer of, of Sony, who was responsible for... For the for the project on their part, so I was sort of the the, the head of the science from for, for that part of the business at Osram. And and that inherently must be, or I mean perhaps I'm wrong, but it sounds like that would be more of a research and development endeavor at the outset, correct? If it hadn't been done before, um, it sort of was, but. But, you know, you tend to split this process into different terms. So if it's research, it's more than five years away. If it's between two and five years into a product, it's called 
pre-development. And if it's like up to two years away, it's product development. And um, that was somewhere between pre-development and product development. And, um, and for those of, of the people who listen, who are, who are active in the, in the consumer electronics business, they know about the extremely fast cycles there. So there's a lot of time pressure to get things done. So we really did develop some new stuff to make that happen, but it was basically clear that technologically it's possible. We just had to make it work and oh, okay. figure out how, how that worked. And the team I was working in at Osram was, was it, that was wonderful. It was, they called it application engineering. And their idea was that LEDs are little nasty bastards. <laughs> <laughs> you get down to it because, you know, I, you know, if assume I am a manufacturer of screws, okay? Mm -hmm. And you are a furniture manufacturer. <clears throat> and you tell me, okay, so give me these screws. Yeah? Uh, I, want a, I want a one and a half inch screw yeah? with that and that diameter and a Phillips head, okay? So I crank up my machine and I just make those screws for you, no problem. No? When I make LEDs, then the LEDs pop out of the machines in a way that they might be somewhere between one and two millimeters long. Um, and some were between three and five millimeters thick and some has a, has a Phillips head and some has a, so they have quantities which vary widely mm -hmm. because it's just to this day impossible to control the manufacturing process any better. And that's not for lack of trying. It's just, you know, the, the light is generated in like four or five atom layers mm -hmm. of the semiconductor material and the wavelength and the efficiency is determined by the precise, you know, material composition of those atom layers. So how do you control that? Huh? Right. And you do this in you, you do this in epitaxy at eleven at, at eleven hundred centigrades. Okay. So, and it makes a difference if it's eleven or five, but you can't directly measure it. So okay, it's it's difficult. So right. so so we started to binning, huh? and um, and and that's 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 just what 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 it makes all difficult. Huh. huh. And and. It's interesting because, I mean, you say that this is certainly still a problem from what I've heard. You have generally kind of low yield on LEDs, but you can make a ton. So it's okay. Yeah. You get you just throw away the ones that don't work, so to speak. Um, but, you know, from a, from a human visual perspective, I never notice it. Or anyone else that I speak to never says, oh, you know, this LED doesn't seem quite right. Is it, is it, What's the balance between kind of the tolerance that you can get on LED manufacturing and the yeah. sensitivity of human perception? Um, that is that is an art by itself, and so so let, let's just look at the typical white LED. A typical white LED, you just buy one, and and then it comes from a certain bin because they're all individually measured and then sorted in little bins with brighter ones, darker ones, the yellowish ones, the greenish ones, oh. the high voltage ones, the low voltage ones, and so on. So, so those are the properties. And then you buy LEDs on a roll or a box and they all have the same bin. So they're close in their properties to each other, but uh, it's difficult to get exactly the bin that you want because right. you know right. you have to either really pay for it if you buy single bins from a distributor but if you do a project like lcd tvs then you can't afford to throw them all away you have to somehow you know make it happen and that's what the industry has learned it has learned to to sort of mix and match you know you would take if you have many leds in one product you would take brighter ones a brighter and a darker bin and you would take a yellowish bin and a bluish bin and a high voltage bin and a low voltage bin and mix it together 
such that the average is much more narrow than right, the right. than than the total production distribution. Huh. That's a logist that's a that's a logistical nightmare. Huh? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I can't. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been there. Huh? I've right. we made that happen for Sony at the time, huh? and, uh, and 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 developed that logistics process, which was just as difficult as all the other science, really. Right, right. And and, and the industry has learned that, and and now, and now you also, um, you know, you you want to achieve a certain brightness, mm-hmm. and and so what you do is you calculate the the lowest efficiency bin. Or bin combination that you're gonna get, and you design your drivers such that that works, and then um, and then you you can you can go from there. And if you happen to get brighter ones, then you just you know you adjust your current a little so it's lower. Or so so this is really something the industry has learned to do, and they also especially for white LEDs they have really vastly improved the process of the phosphor deposition, which means that they can control very well now the relative amount of blue and yellow light. To, to get the right mixture. So there have been great progress steps in, in the process, but it's still, it's still, um, when you get down to the details of it, it's amazing how complex this whole business is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it sounds, and you know, not to, not to remotely denigrate it, but it sounds, uh, you know, to some extent like an art, right? There, there's some amount of mm-hmm. uh, teasing out, you know, the, the yeah. qualitative aspect of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what's, Which, uh, yeah. and what's what what I what I find so so fascinating about it huh, is um, you know this this application engineering team where I was working in that the job was to understand the needs of the customer to help the customer actually integrate these tricky little bastards into into his <laughs> end product huh, and to, right. and to go back and translate that into better products huh, that that was really bridging fundamental science research pre-development to the customer needs and this long bridge this is what has been fascinating me all my all my professional life and 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 could go there and it's it's particularly interesting because as it turns out with leds um you have to apply some sort of holistic engineering in the sense that if you do optical design for for nikon okay you make a 50 millimeter lens for a nikon camera then you make a 50 millimeter lens for well-defined um you know um, interfaces like the like the mount yeah, and the size of the sensor, and then you make a lens that is basically that you can basically can put on every Sony camera or every Nikon mm-hmm. camera, yeah? and then then there you can basically engineer the lens. Okay, that's difficult enough, but with LEDs it turns out that everything just depends so much on everything that you have to, as an optical designer, you have to understand the thermal pains and the mechanical pains and the electrical pains and the assembly pains and the repair pains and, right. and this kind of thing and you have to find optical solutions that that help the other guys and the team solve their problems and um, and and this is one reason why i think this whole illumination optics business is so fascinating because i don't just sit in my chamber and think about illumination optics and rays i always think about solutions that help the complete product and uh, mm-hmm. so, so it's very wide, and it's always every new product project that comes in is is fascinating in its own right. Well, and this this nicely steps into uh, to your transition to uh, to Airy after Osram. Um, you know, my background is more in metrology, and yeah. specifically more so for uh, pseudo imaging type of optics. And yeah. 
the situation that we encounter is we have to know, you know, to lambda over 10, lambda over 25, precisely how the optic is shaped, and it will always yeah. be shaped that way. Yeah. And as you're saying, you can mount it precisely, and we don't expect much variation. So it's a very precise engineering system. Yeah. Um, and even when you come to the design of it, you know, there are analytical solutions, and you can get to a very precise answer. And that's, yeah. it could be, not only could it be, I'm sure that it is in part due to my lack of experience in illumination, mm -hmm. but that's not how I view the design process for illumination. So no. at Airy, at Airy you, you worked on both illumination and imaging. Can you discuss yeah. that process a bit and kind of the, the nuance mm -hmm. between the two? Or if, even if it's a um, nuance, the absolute distinction. So, so, <laughs> so actually, there was not too much overlap between those two fields in Airy. So basically, it's, it's just one of those things. I got hired by Airy because my, my good friend, Markus Zeiler, who was my first boss at Osram, became the head of the illumination branch at Airy. And he is now the uh, chief technical officer at Airy. And, um, and he, he knew that I was not too happy at Osram anymore because Osram just wasn't doing too well. Osram had really big trouble and has trouble today mm -hmm. to manage the transition from traditional lighting to the LED business, which is much more than just technology. It's just a, um, um, it's a, it, it's a different way of business. Mm -hmm. It's electronics and electronics is just much faster than making a, making a plant that, 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 that uses tons of glass every day. And right, right. And so that's that, that's the difference. So I I just joined Airy and um, and basically when I joined there was no job description. <laughs> well, that's exciting. They just, want, they just wanted to have a guy who knows a lot of stuff about illumination to help mm -hmm. the lighting branch, and they also knew that I know a few things about freeforms from my from my freelance part. We didn't get to that yet, but, but maybe maybe we will. And they were interested in the use of freeforms for imaging. And they thought I would be the guy to, to, to help them figure out what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, the, the, that's like the two things which I did for Aerie. Well, no, that, that's the two things which I did for most of my time at Aerie, I, I must say, to, to, to make the lamp heads better and to do, to do pre-development and optical concepts for lamp heads at Aerie, which was, mm -hmm. which was great because it, it gave me a chance to visit film sets because again, I had to understand the, the needs of the end customer, which is the, the chief lighter, the chief gaffer. Huh? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've been over the place. I've been at film sets in Hollywood and in China and in Germany. And I've been talking to some big names in the business. And, um, and they, you know, when you come from Airy, which is really the, the company, Airy is making the cameras that have been used to make Oscar winning movies for about a hundred years now. Huh. Since the 1920s, Airy is making cameras, and the Airy Flex is the legend camera for, for film. And now the Airy Alexa is again the leading camera for, 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 for digitally shot movies. Hmm. And I believe for the last six or seven years, every movie that has been even nominated for like best movie or best director or best photography was shot with an Airy camera, almost everyone. So, so when you come from Airy, they they treat you like a king when you come to the right, films. That it right. was amazing. And, and people are friendly and open and they make time and they talk about, the, they're very open. Right. That was a fantastic experience. And um, so I, I, I understood a lot of that and helped to translate that into some better products at Airy. And the other thing was um, they wanted to know whether we can make a freeform um, 
we can integrate freeform optics into like camera lenses or a viewfinder and stuff like that. So, and there's also a recent paper from Aaron Bauer and, and Matthias Pesch and myself and a couple of others about an, a freeform electronic viewfinder. You may have. I saw, I saw that. And it's, and yeah. additionally, there's one uh, on an all reflective viewfinder as well. Are, are those that's, the same that, papers? That, that's, that's the one. That's the one. That's okay. the one. Yeah? And I'll so be sure was, to link that as well in the uh, yeah. uh, postscript yeah. for this episode so listeners yeah. can, can yeah. find it. So, that was a prototype for a five mirror. Fry, five freeform mirror um, reflective viewfinder, which is actually quite compact, not much larger uh -huh. than another one. Uh, and um, electronic viewfinder, so for a display, for an OLED display or something like that. And people who have seen through many professional cameras and viewfinders say that this is pretty much the best quality they've ever seen. So, And that's, uh, you know, both for my own benefit and for mm -hmm. the audience's benefit. Um, yeah who are not behind these cameras, yeah. uh, what's, why bother? Why bother making, you know, an, an all-reflective viewfinder, much less an all-reflective five-freeform viewfinder? Um, the goal is, so, so one, one step back, making a good viewfinder that gives you a, a, a large field of view at perfect optical quality is much, much harder than it sounds. It's much more than just a magnifying glass. Huh? And uh, mm -hmm. for the people who are in the trade, it's because the, the, the exit pupil of this viewfinder is basically the human eye. So it's outside the optics, which makes everything large and difficult and, and so on. And, um, and so you deal with all kinds of things. You deal with distortion. And, and one of the big problems is actually chromatic aberration, chromatic mm -hmm. aberrations. Huh? And all reflective means no chromatic aberrations. Right, so absolutely. There you, there you go. That was the idea. To, sure, sure. to make that happen. But in the end, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to become a product because, you know, in the end, um, um, the, the, pro, the pros who look through these viewfinders, they can actually shoot great footage with a bad viewfinder as well because they're so professionals. <laughs> right, right. They're so used to it already yeah, that they, uh, yeah. So. yeah. So maybe they make a product out of it, maybe not, but, uh, but it, was a, it was a great project. And just for the record, I didn't do the optical design. That was done by Aaron Bauer from the University of Rochester. Oh, okay. I was, just, I, was, I was the project lead at ARI. And mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not an imaging optics designer, but I understand enough about imaging optics to, to, to sort of um, also respect what Aaron did there. Mm -hmm. So I think that this, um, I, I, have, I have a remaining question, but I'll, I'll keep it for later on uh, when yeah. it's maybe some less yeah. technical questions. But, um, but, you know, this opens up the, the opportunity to discuss freeform optics, which you yeah. worked on, and then you also worked on mm -hmm. in consulting. Um, yeah. And, you know, beforehand, you had, you had said, it's worth asking what your opinion is on them. So what, what is your opinion on freeforms? Freeform optics for elimination? is um, is probably overrated in terms of number of papers that are published and amount of research work that's been done of it and about it um, so let me let me put it like this freeform optics like for illumination goes like that okay you have a light source huh? a sm small or extended light so they don't care huh? mm -hmm. and then just assume that you have an a, a like a round mirror a round metal mirror and then you reflect the light onto the wall and then you get like a homogeneously illuminated ellipse okay so that's easy to imagine okay right and then you take a little hammer and make a dent into the image into the into the mirror okay 
then the distribution changes a little bit. If you make mm -hmm. a dent, then it's locally convex and it will, will create a brighter spot. If you don't overdo it, just, you know, gentle, mm -hmm. gentle hammering. And then you change the distribution, you will have a bright spot where it's convex, surrounded by a darker ring. Mm -hmm. Because there's concave and you have energy, energy conservation and everything. The question is, can you, you know, take the hammer and create a mirror that creates an arbitrary desired distribution. Mm -hmm. That's what freeform optics is about. Huh? And, uh, and, and there were pioneers in the field before us, like Vladimir Olike and some others, who found ways to actually do that. But it was actually Harold and myself who really solved that problem to the extent that it was really usable software to create those freeform surfaces. So we did really pioneering work and, and, and also found that um, a solution to the differential equation that's behind that but since then i don't know hundreds of papers have been written which basically do similar things like we did at the time so it's still mm -hmm. the methods are restricted to point sources and any extended sources which smear it out they're extended like uh, they're treated like perturbations mm -hmm. and there's no really established method out there there's some early research results, but nothing that's really usable in terms of like a rigorous way of treating extended sources. So there's a lack of, so the lack of progress really in big step what's needed for the, for the application is just not comparable with the amount of papers. So hmm. I, I, I have been reviewing a lot of them for, for, the, for the journals and uh, it's fantastic work. And they've also found some improvements here and improvements there, but it's not like a big giant leap. Right. And when you look out there, there's still, I mean, where do you find freeform optics in illumination? So street lighting is a really big thing. So you, right. put, you put surfaces around a street light, but you never know whether that's been used by these tailoring methods or whether that's just optimized with some spline shape or what, or, mm -hmm. or, or done by hand. And, um, and so, so maybe overrated as a topic, that's the wrong word because freeform optics, they have a lot of promise and it's in, so every car headlamp is with a reflector as a freeform optics and every, so, and, and, and many lamps and luminaires are freeform optics, if you like. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So that's really, that's really everywhere. But in terms of the research activities and the attention it gets there, it's, um, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's, over-researched and under-applied, if you like. And that's, and, you know, I, from the imaging side of things, uh, mm. the, the, not necessarily concern, but the perspective I have is that I've seen a number of mm. um, kind of younger engineers or younger designers take the approach mm -hmm. of saying, yeah. I have an optical system that has aberrations. Why don't I just add a freeform? Because it'll correct for it. Uh, mm. Without kind of having the appreciation of, there are some yeah. principles behind these aberrations that might be a easier, yeah. better corrected, and B not appreciating the yeah. difficulty of making yeah. a freeform surface. Yeah. So I'm I'm not an, I'm not really an expert on that, but uh, but it's but my take is, and I've been discussing I've been discussing this a lot with Kevin Thompson when he was still alive, and with people like John Rogers and um, and and uh, Jeannick Roland. Mm -hmm. Um, and you may also be aware that there, that Janik Roland and Tom Soleski, they are the two directors of the what's called the Center of Freeform Optics. Yep, yep. I know Janik. Uh, yeah, I've met Janik and, a few times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so that's 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 an activity like an industry university research corporation that's sort of um, you know um, 
managed by or um, how do I say man well managed by the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. So the industry gives money, universities do research, and right now there's really a large number of big names. So that's really a thriving endeavor, which I'm I'm very happy, and I've been with that from the early days on. So I've been part of that incubator meeting, mm -hmm. where that was basically um, baptized, and huh. um, and um, and and I was also Ari was a member of that for some time. So that was great, and. Um, And my take from that is that if you have a good rotational symmetric optics with lenses and all you want to do is to make a good image, then freeform optics is not going to help you. Right. And, uh, and people like Kevin and Janik, they have some good theoretical reasons why there's not much to gain. It's a different story when you do reflective optics. Mm -hmm. Because... Um, um, so the, the one of the really classics is the three mirror anastigmat, right? And and it turns out that uh, that as long as you cut the the tilted mirrors mm -hmm. out of off axis rotational right, shapes, right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, then this lack of degrees of freedom limits your field of view for good correction. Yeah? And mm -hmm. uh, if you move to freeform optics, then this is mitigated. Mm -hmm. And there is really, there is really sweetness in it. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's so that's great. Huh? And this is also why so many people are interested in the in the in the center for freeform optics, also from the from the consumer electronics industry, because everything that is like variable AR, VR goggles, they probably need some sort of freeform to mm -hmm. to make it happen. No? And then yeah. Um, so, so, so that's a fascinating field, but it's not exactly my field because I don't do imaging for, for a living. I do illumination for a living. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, um, yeah, it's, it, it has a lot of discussion there, certainly inside the imaging field. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious to hear as well your perspective. You have a physics background and, um, and as well on your, on your biography, it discusses your uh, affection for math. And one, one thing I've observed uh, kind of at the university level in optics is that mm. optics can cover such a wide array of topics that yeah. you can have a superficial understanding and maybe learn a few equations or a few techniques without having a deeper fundamental mm. reason for why you do things. Um, yeah. I, I know that's a very ambiguous statement, but have you noticed this in optics or, you know, do you, do you have any thoughts on that general concern that I have in the field? Or illumination optics in particular, or um, yeah, or I mean illumination optics in, optics in particular, but optics in general, I, yeah. either one, whatever you care to mm -hmm. speak on. Um, so that's that's really a wide a, a wide field because you know optics optics that's a big topic. Huh? It's way mm -hmm. more than lens design or illumination design. You have all these this femtosecond and quantum optics stuff and uh, and 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 material science and meta and meta materials and um, and um, image reconstruction so computational optics is a big topic yeah? where you can basically reconstruct um, images where you can't see nothing with the naked eye because it's mm -hmm. so scattered yeah? right you know, right. like deeper layers of tissue on that so that's all optics yeah? and what you just said about learning a few equations and then understand a few things that's true for from for quite a few parts of optics and imaging part imaging optics is luckily a part of that mm -hmm. because to understand the basics of imaging optics you have to understand the basic first order gaussian 
optics and then you know all the things everything about like uh, like focal lengths and and this kind of things and then the 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 primary aberrations are also not so hard to understand mm -hmm. so so it's it's not too difficult for an engineer or physicist to get an idea what imaging optics is about that doesn't make you an optical designer for imaging mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's a long road to really be good at that but to to I mean, I, am, I have never designed an imaging lens in my whole life. So I, I, I don't know how to do that. I, 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 I have watched people doing that and, and I'm amazed how good they are at that, but I, I can't still. I understand what they're doing, I understand their results, and I understand what kind of things they're trying to balance. So, mm -hmm. And I can do that from, from my distance and it was not too difficult for me to, to get to that level of, of understanding without really being a practitioner. I think it's different in computational optics where mm -hmm. things are just so complex mathematically. It's different in quantum optics because that's just so complex. Huh? Right. And, uh, and illumination optics is then also a special thing because it's, it looks so easy from a distance, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it, so, is there are there analogous kind of first principles in illumination optics as there are to imaging optics for example imaging optics as you said you know if you yeah. learn gaussian gaussian reduction and, and a few mm -hmm. and maybe you know first order yeah. aberrations or Seidel aberrations mm -hmm. you have a cursory understanding of imaging yeah. uh, does that situation hold for illumination it actually does but uh, it's more difficult to to get to the bottom of it. Huh? And you briefly mentioned this seminar, which I gave about Eton Du. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wanted to bring that up. I'll, I'll link to that as well. Yeah, uh, and Eton Du is, is the French word for like size or extent. Huh? Mm -hmm. and, it, it, and, it, 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 and it tells something about the, the spatial and angular extent of a beam of light. So if some beam of light leaves like a headlamp or something, then it always it's always an aperture area and an angular range to which light is sent from every point on that aperture area. And Etondu is captures the idea of the size of that beam. And if you think about the simple magnifying glass, if you make put that into the sun and then you have your your burning spot, okay? Mm -hmm. Then you have a large area from where the sunlight comes from a small angle, and then you have the small area from where the full uh, lens looks flash, so you have a large angle, so that like the product of area times angle in a sense remains constant. Right, right. And um, and 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 it's it's that that is the core concept you need to understand when you want to come to grips with illumination optics. It's just as fundamental as like a focal length or an image or or things like that. But it's not as easy to get to by looking at just a few beams and. Um, and this is this is what makes it so difficult. It's not an obvious concept like an image. It's a more abstract notion, yeah? and um, and it brings me to think about light for illumination in terms of you know play dough, mm -hmm. you know these little mm -hmm. sticks of red, green, blue play dough, yeah? which you can squash around. You can change their shape, yeah? but but you cannot change the mass and you cannot change the volume without right. cutting anything off. Huh? And there's a deep analogy to what light is doing. Or when I talk about scattering, I always think about whipping cream in a bowl. Huh? Uh -huh. Where whipping, where the, this liquid whipping cream would be the dense bright light before it's scattered. And then if you whip it, you mix it with the, with the less dense air. 
which is the dark light from other directions and so on. So these analogies actually get us quite far, but uh, but uh, but it is it is not obvious. And then there is exceptions to that rule. So you really, there, many people may have heard about Eton Blue conservation, but uh, not many people really know when it's permitted to apply that and when not. Mm -hmm. and uh, and it's this difficulty which is not obvious but it's deep and important and without having some understanding of that you will you know when you try to design illumination optics you will be blind and bump against the same concrete walls and get your nose bloody where streams of blood are running down from people before you right. because you just don't see the right path to 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 the to the to the design and uh, and because that's not obvious it's not being taught at university and there's little research on that and there's also not many good books about that so it's really difficult to learn that and um, and that's that's a major thing that is driving me now you know mm -hmm. after 25 years in the trade i i believe that i have really come to grips with that so so as you mentioned one of the things i'm doing is i'm doing optical design for illumination as a service which is something i'm doing a bit differently from from the standard engineering business. So what uh, standard engine engineering service, you go there and then you define a project and then some guy is doing his work or her work and then, um, and then you get a solution and then you make it happen and then you have a product, so that's fine. But uh, I try to, so my goal is, is more to create understanding on the customer side than mm -hmm. to just deliver a product. So if I do the optics, I, I try to make sure that the development team on the customer side really understands what's going on. And I'm not afraid that they're not going to need me anymore because there's just so much work out there. And, um, and if they're happy with me, then they will come back with the more difficult question next time. So that's good. And, um, and the other thing I'm doing is, is I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so I'm teaching, I'm giving these seminars, which are free to watch on the OSA website and some Lightroom's user group and some more are coming right now. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this freelance work for just two years now, and I'm still in the process of, of making this more readily available. So I'm mm -hmm. teaching these courses face to face in Germany, but um, that's a little distant from California. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. so, so, so now Synopsis is a company that is 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 offering light tools in Code Five and, and, and LucidShape. They're actually organizing an online version of this course for me, which I'm giving. Mm -hmm. But and, but they do the organization part of that. So that's that's the other thing that I'm doing to try to to mitigate that because it is really difficult for for so. I have met many illumination engineers in my professional life and, and nearly every single one of them is a side entrant. There are mm -hmm. mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, physicists, some, some mathematicians, some computer scientists, and then all of a sudden they stumble into illumination optics just like I did 25 years ago. And then they try to figure out what happens. And then if they're lucky, they have an old experienced colleague in their team from mm -hmm. whom they can learn. And maybe, so today's also easier because there's so much information also in the software, but still um, it's, uh, it's difficult to, to learn that. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. I'm teaching to, to bring the knowledge across to people who, which I have gained over the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, so I, I told you beforehand, I watched your uh, uh, discussion on selection of sources and Etendu on the OSA yeah. website and all 
I'll absolutely be sure that we link to that. They were uh, extremely informative. I mean, again, my background isn't per se in illumination, but uh, Thank you. both of them, both of them were very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. know you said that Synopsis is putting on those lectures. I think that, I think the the sign up date, unfortunately, for the first one might be due by today, but uh, I'll, mm. I'll link to them so that listeners mm. can can see the later lectures. Are you giving those as well mm. uh, at a later date again? Or oh yeah 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 okay okay so just so, for our listeners so so, yeah. so if it works like intended, it's going to be a series. So. Uh, so we don't have a definite plan, definite plan yet, but I think it's something that should happen like every three months or so. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're not lost. Yeah. So uh, to kind of to, to close out the technical side of this discussion, um, I'm really curious where you see uh, illumination broadly progressing in the future. I know that you've made efforts. You sent an email. Mm -hmm. You've made um, great efforts towards kind of forming a technical group and establishing yeah. it as more of an established. Um, back and forth between academia and industry, but, mm. but what is the future yeah. of illumination science? It is going to be even more pervasive and everywhere than it is right now. And right now you can already say that it's everywhere mm -hmm. because wherever you look, you see light and, uh, and the tendency is clearly towards not just, you know, cranking it up, it's clearly towards engineering. Mm -hmm whatever is illuminating out there yeah? and with the exception of some things in, in, in general lighting maybe. But, uh, but um, I hear from people like John Koschel that, um, that the consumer electronics industry, like the tech guys in, in, in Silicon Valley, but all over the place, they hire illumination engineers a lot if they can find them. Mm -hmm. Because illumination is going to be a much more integral part of all these gadgets. So when you look at at you know this here huh? yeah it, it it's a it's so you have this flash on the back side mm -hmm. which actually is a flash made of two chips like a cold white and a warm white one so so that the camera will automatically match the color temperature to the to the image mm -hmm. and um, so so that's in there and then you have either an OLED display or you have um, you have you have an LCD an LED lit backlight and then you have all these variables and all these gadgets are coming. So, so mm -hmm. the this, this, this is where it's going. And then you have, um, people have crazy ideas, huh? like, uh, so you're aware, you're, you're aware of these sneakers, of kids' sneakers, which have these little LEDs and the soles. Sure, sure, right. That, that, they were that the, envy, the envy of all the other, all the other kids. Oh, right? yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, so they think about, of, about integrating LEDs into clothes. Huh? just right. for the heck of it huh? right and um, and and if you look at cars yeah, mm -hmm. um, you think that LED LED lighting is already everywhere but but there's more coming and, um, and there's a lot of development going on in the automotive industry to to just create a great customer experience for the mm -hmm. driver and for the passengers huh? and uh, and then you have this whole smart home thing mm-hmm um, where illuminating your home in an automated way, um, and um, one topic that is that has less application than it has promise is what's called human-centric lighting. Hmm. I'm uh, not I'm not familiar with the with the phrase. Okay, um, so so that's actually really fascinating. So so most people know that we have like four different receptor types in our eyes so for red green blue and then the rods for night vision mm -hmm. but there's a fifth one 
which is distinctly blue sensitive and is distinctly located at the bottom of our eyes. In other words, those cells detect the blue sky if that's present. And those are connected to some deep centers in our brains, which have to do with our circadian rhythm. Huh. And they did experiments like, um, like they had this school. So, so remember when we were 14 yeah? and we had to go to school at eight and we had math. Right, so, right. <laughs> it is sort of torture, and it's yeah. just not physiologically right to do that with 14 years old. Huh? So, so, so they made this experiment. They had two classrooms, identical classrooms, and identical classes, basically, it's just random. Huh? And the only thing they changed is that in one classroom, they had a brightly blue illuminated ceiling in the mm -hmm. morning. And then they measured like, like the EEG currents of the brains they found out that students actually exhibit, the, the kids, they exhibit alpha waves. So huh. they're physiologically really sleeping in the classroom. They look like they're awake, but they have alpha waves. They don't, right, right. They, they cannot possibly learn anything. And then they also made more experiments like cortisol measurements for measuring objective stress levels, mm -hmm. interviews and so on. And it was a, a clear, distinct, significant, measurable difference that in this blue lit room, the kids were more awake. Huh. They had more academic progress. And at the same time, they were subjectively and objectively less stressed. So, so in, instead of uh, having my morning cup of coffee, I should instead just step outside. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. or, or work at a place where, where you would have a lot of blue light from, the, from, from, from above. Mm -hmm. Right. In, in the morning. And in the noon, and in, in, in about noon, when, when, when that would be natural, mm -hmm. and you would dim it down, you know, this, this is the reason why all these cell phones now have this night shift mode with only yellow light. Right, right. So that's the reason for that. And, and this interplay between more complex electronic control of lighting and, 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 and human well-being mm -hmm. and of animals, that's, that's, that's something that's going to happen. And then um, um, horticulture. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so a real, a real boom for the LED industry in that field was, was the the legalization of marijuana in the United States, mm -hmm. because now you can grow marijuana in legally, and uh, and in order to do that in like uh, the northern parts of the country, in, and there's also demand in winter. You do it with horticulture. So you you have this eerie magenta light, which is composed of deep blue and deep red. Because this is where the green plants absorb, so that really looks creepy. Because the plants look so black, right? The right. First place, because they're because okay. it's high yeah. high energy high absorption yeah. efficiency, yeah. right? The idea is to to let them. Out. But now they found out that that by proper balancing of the 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 spectral composition of this magenta light, they can control both the growth mm -hmm. and the content of the medical ingredients and the content right, of, right. of the THC as well. So, huh. and, and then you can use it for whatever purpose. Huh? So, and that's, that's, that, that will be coming more because with the, with the advent of more cheap and efficient LEDs, mm -hmm. um, this is really a very efficient way of growing things in a climate where, where you just have no light because in the upper lat latitudes, you just don't have sunlight. And, and, right, and those, right. are just, those are just a few examples. Huh? And if you look at at the cities. One, one interesting thing is that they, they did a study over many cultures and many centuries and found out that people tend to spend about 3% of gross national product for lighting. 
and that was from the time of candles. Oh wow! Un until today, and um, and except that uh, that now that it's become more pervasive and cheap, they just we don't save on lighting. We just spend our yeah yeah our three percent on making the cities blink. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so pollute. it's mm. yeah, right, exactly. From from mm. from the telescope and astronomy perspective, pollute. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is. Uh, I mean. You know the the scope of it and the reach is kind of astonishing. How much illumination does, and it's it's yeah. part of optics that gets me most excited because it's uh, mm. the application of light onto things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that that's what it is. You know, uh, the the other field of physics that fascinates me is is quantum physics and cosmology, and I'm not a pro in that field, but I read books. Okay. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, Nobody in my immediate family environment or my friends, I, they are all in different professions. They're no physicists. I have no physicist friends, strangely <laughs> enough. <laughs> or, or, or at least only a few of them. And, mm -hmm. and, but, but my il illumination work, huh? I talk about that and it's, it's, it's easy. It's immediately possible to convey why that is interesting and fascinating to just about everybody. Right, because right. We are tangible. We are, we, are, we are vision animals, we human mm -hmm. beings. Like dogs are nose element animals, mm -hmm. we are vision elements, and so that's easy to convey. And uh, yeah, so so that. But we wanted to talk about you know the community, the community aspect of that, which is particularly difficult because um, um, it is not such an established academic field. So there is no academy part of that, yeah? mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I recognize that at Osram when I joined Osram in two thousand and six as you know just go there and do something more practical than just consulting um people kept bugging me so what is this eton do and <laughs> so so i created i created the course that i'm basically teaching until today and i thought okay instead of answering it individually i'm gonna i'm gonna teach that course and i'm gonna teach it maybe once or twice and then be done with it and then i can go back to my work in the end, I've been teaching this course for seven years at Osram over 30 times to like 500 people. So everybody wow. in Osram. And, um, and at the time, um, I was, again, to be lucky in the right place at the right time, the chief technology officer of Osram decided that they need to install a credible expert career path in the company, <clears throat> which they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So they defined technology fields and optics was one of them. Then they were looking for people who would know their stuff and would be connected to the outside world in a way that would they could represent the field to the outside world and they would also teach and make the, just make the topic work within the company and since i've been doing this anyway <laughs> <laughs> they chose me as the like the like the poster child for that huh. which is sort of nice because you get all this money and company car and the decoration and the the best parts the best parts the of titles and everything yeah right the best part of the best part of it was that I didn't have a budget and I didn't have um, to manage a team I was huh. just I was the I was the I was the sort of the the global coordinator for optics but I was not the head of a big development team or something like that right. so I was tra right. I was traveling around the world teaching optics and making sure that everybody was working on the software and then um, then. In the beginning, it was just not very, you know, conscious this effort. But later on, it was. I I used that 
um, you know, the title and the influence it gave me um, to build a community of optics engineers in Osram. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I started, it maybe was like a handful in 2006, because the thinking at Osram was, we make the lamps and optics is something that the customer will do with our lamps. But then they found out that they need optical knowledge and optical development by themselves. And this handful has been growing until 2013 when I left Osram to about 100 people who were really more or less full-time doing optics, optical design in Osram. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were able to, to organize something like an annual Osram internal optics conference, like the SPAE conference in San Diego, but just, you know, Osram internal which everybody considered to be the hottest conference of the year because mm. there was enough substance. And because it was internal, we could actually talk about it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and so that was where the people met. And, and, and so it was a real conference, you know, three days full of talks and sessions and titles and session chairs and abstracts and, and so on. It was a, a real conference and people were drinking wine and beer together in the evening <laughs> and going to the sauna and uh, that kind of thing. And, and then they would know each other. Right. And then we created a discussion forum in 2010, which was also, it was around, but it was not as ubiquitous and pervasive as it is now. It mm -hmm. was still some, especially in this old company like Osram, it was um, people were, some, some senior management people were opposed to openly sharing knowledge. They wanted to channel that over their desk Right, right. Which sounds ridiculous today, and and it's still it's still but it was already ridiculous in 2010. Okay, mm -hmm. so so but, but we managed to but do it that. But it still is a, a common belief. I, I just want to oh, yeah. interject that. But yeah, yeah, but but and I know that it is, but it just you know it doesn't work. It, yeah, 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 of course. Uh, if you do that, you create a bottleneck, and that's right. that's just not helping. No? You, and um, so so we were able to do that. And the idea was that people kept bugging me with questions and, and with this discussion forum site open, um, we, I told them, okay, I will answer that question, but you have to post it there and I will answer it there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by, by the time some guy asked some question about what does a one optical property quality mean? Uh, by the time I got around to answering it, I found that this totally improbable Chris Eichelberger from Michigan had already answered the question because he was an expert of that. And, and that's the purpose, you know, I know my right. stuff, but, but in a company like Osram for every single question, there's probably an expert who knows more about that than I do. Mm -hmm. and, and then because they already have been knowing each other from these conferences, they were open to discussing that. And, and that really worked very well. And there was, it was a great thing. And, and, you know, there was a lot of reorganization going on and we found by some surveys also that um, the members of that group, they considered themselves more part of the optical design community within Osram than being part of a random group whose name would change like half a year by some next restructuring. Yeah? Right, right. And um, so that was really, really fantastic. Yeah? And then with that experience, and, and, and that's not just something that we did off the top of our heads. So I hired a person who would know a few things um, about that. And, um, and the idea is to, if you want to look that up, Google community of practice. And that is not just the word, that's just a standard term in the cognitive sciences. Mm -hmm. It's a 
different thing than a community of interest. A community of practice is, let me, I have it here, let me read it out, is a group of people who share a concern or a passion for something they do and learn how to do it better as they interact regularly. I think hmm. that's a good definition of that group. And, but it's a, it's, a, it's a community of people who do it seriously, professionally, and are not just interested in it like uh, right. any other right. forum, like uh, how do I polish my car? Um, I don't want to you know, put that down because they're professional polishers, but the people who run around in the forums, they're not. Okay, that's a, that's a different thing. So, so, we, so we did some really, you know, we had some cognitive science background on that also, which helped a lot to actually get it right. And that was great. And then with that experience in, in, the, in the back of my head, I initiated a, an, an illumination optics incubator at OSA. Mm-hmm. It was this, like the same series of things which there was a freeform optics incubator earlier on, which now is, has become the center of freeform optics. And I wanted to do a similar thing for illumination optics and to use that incubator thing to jumpstart something like an illumination optics journal and an illumination optics public conference and so on. Mm-hmm. And it was a great experience. I, I found um, my good friend and colleague Henning Rain who is also an optical designer, and Grude Gregory, who is product manager for Light Tools, and, uh, and Man Fock, who is from Hong Kong, who, who is the head of diffractive optics, a great optics manufacturer also for illumination. We were the hosts, mm. and then we had people from all across the world, and 20 people, 25 people across the whole value creation chain from, from theory, development, research, software, product development, system integration. We had academia, we had a guy from the National Institute of Standards. So we had the whole group together and I brought up this idea and then they said, it's not gonna work. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can laugh about it, but at that time it was really like a hammer in my face. And the reason reason why it doesn't work is that um, in order to make that happen, you have to have a critical mass of people who are not only willing, but also allowed to share what they know. And that mm-hmm. is the sad state of elimination optics that this is just not the case. The people who know things mm-hmm. all work in industry and they're not allowed to share what they know. And the brightest and the, the hottest stuff is being done in, in Silicon Valley. And for the, for the mm-hmm. consumer electronic stuff, it's amazing what these guys do, but, uh, but they're secretive as hell. Right. So, so it's all it's all IP. And, it's all um, IP, and I've been working for yeah. a number of those companies. And if if I would even mention the name, they would probably sue me. Huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> at least they would they would have the right to sue me under the NDAs which I had to sign for that. Sure. That kind. So they will never allow anything that's not like five years old to be presented there. And um, mm-hmm. and 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 so that's not going to work. And in, in academia, nothing happens. They would love to talk about it and, and, and so on, but this just so it will be, it will remain restricted to just some, um, some, some, you know, some sub. Right, right. Like the SPAE conference in San Diego. But uh, so basically, all the illumination engineers in the world, and we estimate that there's roughly 20,000 of them over the planet. And we know that number because we had all the people from the software, the, from the ray tracing software vendors right, sure. in the room. And then you, they will never tell you how many seats they have. But when you ask into the room, yeah. and you agree with that number, then they have a pretty good estimate of how many people use their software. And then you get some nods. So right, and isn't it right. amazing? You have, you have a profession with 20,000 people, a tech, highly t- technical 
profession yeah, with yeah. deep knowledge required and no university course. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it sounds like you have to have some, um, some kind of transformative moment in academia that kind yeah. of prompts innovation yeah. in the, in, in the university side to really get the ball rolling. Yeah. I mean, will that happen or is there something that can short of, short of, uh, promoting the education? Um, I think it, there are developments going on in that direction. Huh? And, uh, I know that in some American universities, so, for example, in, 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 in Arizona, University of Arizona, you have John Koshal, mm -hmm. who is like the lone hero there. And, um, <laughs> and I don't think much is going on at the University of Rochester at this point, but, um, but things are, I know that some professors plan illumination mm -hmm. optics courses in their, university, in their universities, and I'm helping them to make it happen with to the, whatever I can do to, to, to help them. And, uh, right. And I think um, um, it is it is coming in two ways, which is, and one 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 development is like more universities of, of applied sciences of applied mm -hmm. sciences. So, so um, um, we cannot change the fact that from the outside, illumination optics looks like you know reflector bending and baking and plastic baking and little injection molding. And there you go. So it's just what it looks like. And we cannot change that suddenly, but this is stuff that applied sciences is about. Huh? And um, mm -hmm. and actually, you don't have to study eight years to understand the theory. Huh? You can do that in a one semester course if you like, huh? and right. then you go on with more practical things. And um, so that's something that could fit in the schedule of applied sciences universities or colleges. And the other thing is just professional education. Mm -hmm. And um, and 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 th that's where I'm trying to. You know, contribute my part, um, but I just hope that more is coming. Um, right. Because this topic is, I, I'm doing what I can, but this topic is way too big for a little guy like me. Mm -hmm. it's just, I'm just one person and I can do only what I can. And, right. And, uh, right. So, so, and I think that, that um, ironically, COVID-19 COVID might actually help us because now you don't have, it's in the head of basically everyone, you don't have to go anywhere to. Yeah take a course huh? so if you can study without being on campus you can you can do online courses and now yeah. you can this whole webinar idea which you can then reload huh? it's not as interactive and you can't you, you, you don't have a guy like me to correct your exercises like in the in the interactive online course that I'm that I'm doing with synopsis but uh, this is this is this is where it's gonna happen and uh, the this will also happen within the companies so, mm -hmm. so, so in the big companies, the big electronic companies, they, they know that they have to catch up somewhere and they, they, they make some, you know, some, they, they will have a guy like me who just mm -hmm. runs, around, runs around and enjoys teaching. So they do this company internal. And uh, so those are the development on the, the education side, which I, which I think is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I uh, am. Um, particularly getting over the, the hump of how, I mean, understandably so, it's, it's such powerful technology broadly in optics um, and how much it's revolutionized a field of, or various fields, I should say, of, of yeah. technology broadly. But uh, so much of this knowledge is held very, very tightly and very secretively, you know, because mm. it's company property yeah. and they don't want to let it go. But uh, yeah. Overcoming that hump is is something that I've witnessed as well on on our own forum. So it's an interesting yeah. problem. But 
so this is this is the the state of affairs and it's uh, it's difficult it's sort of a chicken and egg problem mm -hmm. because if there's not so much out there in terms of this being really an established field and maybe i should could go back to that non-imaging optics is considered a branch of optics pretty much huh? right isn't it yep. yeah huh? yeah absolutely and, in my and opinion that, anyways, i should say yes yeah and also in the opinion of many optical right, scientists right. Huh? so mm -hmm. non-imaging optics is just the branch huh? and that is the lasting achievement of roland winston and we really have to thank him for that because he was a particle physics professor in the 1970s at the university of chicago and and he still was a particle physics professor when I when I worked there for a year with him. Huh. But he came across the problem of detecting Cherenkov radiation in the 1970s. And he wanted to use photomultiplier tubes and he wanted to make them more efficient and didn't find readily any theory about how to make that happen. And being huh. a good physicist, he basically developed it and then later found out that he, in, he, that he had reinvented some wheels. Right, right. Which some lone Russians had been published in the 1920s and stuff like that. So there are really some great old papers. But um, it was Roland who basically, and that was the in 1970s, 80s, that was energy crisis and solar energy coming up. Mm -hmm. So research for concentrating light for solar energy got money. Right. And Roland was sort of the spearhead of the group and he coined the name non imaging optics, which I think huh. is um, not brilliant from a marketing standpoint because you should never <laughs> name your product by what it cannot do <laughs> right <laughs> but, but you know he was he he was the spirit so it was his right to name it and he chose chose that name and that's just what it is and um and there is this this um science of non-imaging optics which has largely to do with the the path of light and the optical elements that you use for concentrating sunlight huh? and, and and that's great and it is a branch of optics, but um, but over the years I found that illumination optics is not the same. Mm -hmm. So look at something which is actually quite common. Look at like a follow spot in a theater. A follow spot is like this movable lamp head where you have Beyonce on the stage dancing and singing and right. she should be in this nice bright circle with a sharp edge, okay? So, so, mm -hmm. so and it's... Um, to make that with multicolor LEDs is 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 something that takes some experience to get right. Okay. Anyway, mm -hmm. but if you look at how that's typically done, you would have the LEDs, and then you would have some optical elements, probably some non-imaging optical elements, and some light mixing elements huh, to create a homogeneously illuminated plane, huh, which mm -hmm. has this round baffle which you can adjust, huh, and then you would have some imaging zoom projection optics to bring that to the stage. Huh? And that is something that we see over over again in illumination optics, that good illumination optics engineers, they pluck concepts and optical elements from non-imaging optics like a CPC or a light guide if they need it, or a lens when they want to image some intermediate thing somewhere else. Huh? And uh, and what's what's not yet there is that illumination optics, like a separate field in optics, which, which, which takes concepts from non-imaging optics, from, from imaging optics, but also from thermodynamics, huh? mm -hmm. and puts them together to make good illumination optical systems that's not yet recognized as, as a separate field of optics as it should be, in, at least in my head. Right, right. But well, it's just I've, what it is. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've already kept you uh, far longer than I told you I would, so... Um, 
you know, I, this has been a fantastic conversation. And well, you I get think, into talking, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think if anything, you know, I, I'd love to have you on the podcast again if you'd be up for it. But we can oh, yeah. discuss that um, mm -hmm. before we go. If you are uh, still willing to do the um, the non technical, overrated, underrated portion. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We, can, we can keep it pretty short because I don't want to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, mm -hmm. uh, great. So. So the gist of it is just uh, I'll throw out a few random ideas. I've, I've uh, solicited some peers who had some questions mm -hmm. that they wanted to hear your overrated, underrated, and okay. And just uh, for the record, um, I, I I do not know what's coming. Yeah, correct, correct. That's mm -hmm. the key part of this. And as well, of course, <laughs> always feel free to just say pass if you don't, uh, don't yeah, want to okay. cover it. So, uh, mm -hmm. the first one actually is something that I wanted to ask you about, which is the Bayern Munich uh, football team. The Bayern Munich football team? Yeah, the or soccer team for the, the U.S. Um, audience. That is neither overrated nor underrated. It's, uh, in my opinion right now, the best soccer football team in the world. Oh, okay, accurately rated them. Mm -hmm. Accurately rated. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's my hometown. Huh? Mm -hmm. and, and I visited the first Bayern Munich game probably that was exactly 51 years ago. I was eight or nine years old and my dad took me to the old stadium where Bayern München beat Hamburg by five to one and Beckenbauer shot a goal. So, <laughs> so I remember that. So, so I've been with that, with that club for a long time and they had their ups and downs. Mm -hmm. But now they, they have been winning the German championship for I think the sixth time in a row. They, they won the German cup, they won the European uh, Champions League Cup, yeah, mm -hmm. which is otherwise typically won by, by, by clubs like, you know, Barcelona, Real right, Madrid, right. clubs like that. And, uh, and, uh, and they, you know, they kicked Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Messi. Huh? Right, they, right. They kicked them out in the half final, eight to one. Yeah. It was. It, it, they, and they are really doing a really really great job right now and uh, they may not have the individual top players like Neymar or Messi at this point but uh, but overall they are they are really really hard to beat and that makes mm -hmm. them probably the best the best team on the planet yeah? I think that's actually part of the strong appeal of that team for me is that they do not rely on the uh, you know the star power yeah. that is they don't yeah. they don't have to have a Messi or Neymar to play so well so yeah and um, they don't and, and the other interesting thing is they don't have a credit line with the bank yeah <laughs> they just they just have the money yeah right and they, to, and, uh, they, and, they, and they don't have then they don't have an oil prince or a Russian oligarch behind them it's just right right huh, that is pretty interesting yeah um so the next question uh, uh comes from um Janet Acri, who traveled in Europe for a bit, and her question was, uh, transportation by train, overrated or underrated? In Europe or over the place? I, I, I think in general. In general, in general, it's, um, it's underrated. It, traveling by train, if you have a good train system, and I, I'm lucky to live in a country, in a region where that is actually working quite well, it's just such a convenient and relaxing way to, to travel. You just mm -hmm. hop on the train. You just don't worry about a thing. You don't have to control a car and be afraid of anything. And and it gets you there maybe not quite as fast as a car, but that's improving. And um, and it's also much, much, much better for the environment. Mm -hmm. Right. So so that's something where 
I have to say it, you Americans have to catch up. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that we're making much progress, uh, but let's not get into that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. um, so a question that comes from Isaac Trumper, he's, he's uh, someone that I work with uh, quite heavily uh, and has an imaging science background. Yeah. But his question is uh, image simulation as a, so this is more technical, but image simulation as a quantifier for performance of a system. Um, and I think he means more so with respect to illumination systems. Is that, is that, I don't even know if it's done, period, but if it is done, is it overrated or underrated? I think it's underrated. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the, the potential is underrated. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I know a little bit because I, I worked on the topic a little bit at my time in area. Uh, you can think that that um, a good image simulation to the extent that you really get out of the simulation what the sensor is giving you as a raw image that's mm -hmm. that's the idea of image simulation not just you know on a on a matte plane it, right, inc right. it includes the whole train until you start to do electronic digital processing no? so mm -hmm. so that's something that um, to the best of my knowledge Zeiss is the only company who has a really well working software to do that where you could actually physically render a 3D scene as it is seen through a lens. Huh, and Zeiss is the offer of that? No, no, the, it's company internal. The, oh, you, you pardon me, okay, pardon me. Yeah. So they have the software, but they're not gonna sell it. Huh? Sure, and, sure, uh, sure. I'm not aware of anything else like that. And, and, um, and that would be for the movie industry. Mm -hmm. huh? um, it, things have become subtle and you know, like remember you, re you remember gravity yes movie okay um nine over 98 percent of the frames of the individual frames in gravity have rendered content wow so it was george clooney and sandra bullock in, and then everything else in, is... in the in the, ast in the astronaut suits right right hanging hanging on ropes in a in the studio with green screens behind them huh? right so, right. so that's so that's that huh? and if you see that if you see that happen huh, then um, then um, it is imperceptibly s wrong in a subtle way it just doesn't 100% look right and sure, you cannot put your finger on it why huh? and it's exactly that the, the the directors of photography they they spend a long time in the rental shops to select the cameras and the lenses to obtain the look that they want to create. And the look is done by shooting the movies with a camera and not in post-production so much and um, until today. Right. And then right. you want to match that look with, uh, with your rendered content, but you just don't know how to do that because image simulation is missing. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's, I'm looking forward to seeing where the industry goes with it um, mm -hmm. in that yeah. area. Um, someone else asked um, two questions, but I'll just choose one of them, which is uh, projective geometry. Is it overrated or underrated? <laughs> I think that's an appropriate response to <laughs> I think you have to pass on that one because I just don't know enough about that. Huh? Sure, sure. Um, so I only have two more uh, from myself. Just one, one thing. One thing comes to mind that uh, that um, if anyone knows the x, y, and the u prime, v prime color space, 
then it's projective geometry which um, gives you the transformation from one to the other. But huh. that's that's about the only thing that comes to mind, and that's not enough to say to really give a judgment whether it's over or Sure. Yeah. sure. Um, so my final two, uh, um, Gottfried Leibniz. That one is for me. Mm-hmm. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. Uh, how how come? Or could you explain more about about why? Because why Isaac Newton. Because Isaac Newton was just such a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Don't yes. say anything bad about dead people, okay? But uh, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, but you know, Newton is credited with. Um, with the with finding calculus, mm-hmm. and it's just not true. It's uh, right, right. And, and and so so at least Leibniz should get equal credit, but um, Newton made sure that he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. There's um. And and he had also he he had also some other wonderful insights. He had also some very strange ideas, Leibniz. But uh, in mm-hmm. general, just because of that, it's and which is like a like a really. That's the revolution in math, isn't it? Calculus. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's 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 everywhere, huh? and it's Leibniz who found. I don't say invented because you don't find things. You don't invent sure, things sure. in math. I, I'm personally convinced that they exist, whether we find them or not, and sometimes we find them. Yeah, yeah. I uh, yeah. I, I think as well. You know, I, some of his ideas, particularly in philosophy, as well, are just at the very least yeah. very fun to read about, and it's astonishing mm. that this one person had such a wide impact and yeah. number of kind of findings that, mm. yeah, as you said, he got thrown under the bus by Newton to, to no small yeah. extent. So. So I believe that it was him who had the concept of monads. Yes. Like people running around as isolated monads in the universe without interaction. Right. And, um, and I, I think that goes way too far. Sure. Sure. And I, 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 I will never be able to see through your eyes because they're not even connected. They're part of your brain and not mine. Right. But, um, but uh, so it's, it's, it's fundamentally impossible to experience your experience. Huh? Yeah, yeah. There's but, a, there's, uh, yeah. But, but we are not monads. We are social, we are social animals. Huh? Right. And if there's a great... Um, a great book trilogy, which I'll, I'll link it again in the postscript to this, called the Baroque Trilogy by Neil Stevenson. But it centers around Newton and um, Leibniz to no, no small extent and kind of in a historical fiction way explores oh, okay. their ideas. Okay, it's, cool. It's I'm going to fun. read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's great. a lot of fun. So, yeah. um, so then the last, the last question for overrated underrated is uh, currywurst. Currywurst? Yes. Ooh. Um, I think Currywurst splits humanity in two in two parts. <laughs> <laughs> you love it or you hate it. Sure. And um, for the ones who love it, it's overrated. It's it's underrated, and for the ones who hate it, it's overrated. I guess. <laughs> I personally right. I personally make sure that I get a currywurst maybe once a month. I know that yeah. it's not healthy, but uh, <laughs> but once in a month I just um, have. I get this craving, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to say from the U.S., you know, from being in the U.S., it's strongly underrated. It's very hard to find them and it's... Um, oh, yeah. In the U.S., it's hard to find them. Yeah, yeah much to my but, disappointment. But, but, but in, every, you know, in every, even small German city, yeah? mm-hmm. you, know, you go in every, in every railway station, if there's something, you get a currywurst. Yeah. 
and there there are these little you know these little mobile vendor shops mm-hmm. which which are running around and what you get there is um, is currywurst yeah right right it's all over this the is, place this is only a, a more of motivation for me to go to germany now so <laughs> yeah when you do make sure to let me know and uh, sure. munich you, can, you, you if you go to germany that then you will have to go to munich because you you just have to go there because it's really a great city mm-hmm. and um and and i'm just you know 10 miles outside so be my guest sure absolutely i'll uh, mm-hmm. i'll take you up on that yes um, please Well, with that, you know, thank you again so much for your time. Um, and our guest thank again you. has been Julius Mushwick. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Spotlight Report. As always, we invite you to go to our website, community.eleoptics.com, where you can communicate and discuss this episode of the podcast and find all other episodes of the podcast, as well as other useful information. Thanks. Have a great day.